All right, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. All right, if this is your first week here um, at Manuka Bible Church, welcome. It's great to have you. You're actually jumping in at a really good place because of the fact that uh, we are jump, we're starting a new series. It's going to begin now and go through all the way to next April. And this series is called The Story. And what we're encouraging everyone at NBC to do is to actually pick up uh, one of these books, which is not a Bible. It actually includes all the scripture that we're going to be teaching through. So it has all like the Bible passages in it that we're teaching through from now all the way through April. So we're encouraging people to read a chapter each week. And it has, again, from Genesis to Revelation. It's a chronological approach. So you're reading the Bible chronologically. Um, it doesn't have every chapter and passage in the Bible. So it's going from Genesis to Revelation and helping us see the narrative arc. But it has everything that we're going to be teaching through this year. And so I encourage you to write in it, um, make notes, put questions, I don't get this, and then bring this, and then like each week you could take notes on whatever's in here. So next week we're going to be teaching on chapter one. So this week it's like 12 pages uh, to read, so I encourage you to buy these. Um, but don't buy them from us because we ran out. Uh, we sold 500 of these already, and we tried to get them for five bucks so we could get the cheapest rate, and we, we sold out the first time and we sold out the second time. So we're going to order up some more um, but don't wait. Go ahead and like, um, either if you got Amazon Kindle or something, you could download a copy there um, or, or just borrow someone's this week or something. But, but go ahead and just jump into that and that's going to be important. But the thing that honestly, if we're going through a year, a school year, trying to understand, like, or like really understand the narrative arc of the Bible, why? Why? I mean, I know we're Christians and we believe the Bible, but seriously, wh why? Why do we have the gall to say that we believe the story of the Bible? Or maybe even more specifically, why do we believe the Bible at all? I mean, there's lots of skeptics that have lots of good reasons why we shouldn't believe this book, that this, that this is just one of many holy books that has a bunch of holes and a bunch of problems in it. And so why in the world would we believe this book? Um, I was preparing a bunch of stuff that I was going to be uh, bringing to the table and teaching on this um, when Jason King let me listen to um, this lecture by uh, this Reformed Baptist uh, pastor and, and theologian named Vody Bauckham. And Vody Bauckham had an answer to this. And as I was listening through to that, I thought, man, that is such an awesome way to present that, that I just took his notes. And so I'm giving you a lot of that this morning um, on, on this, this whole reality. And th the truth is, is that um, if you look in our articles of faith, our articles of faith have this audacious claim. We believe that the Bible is the inerrant, authoritative, verbal, plenary, inspired word of God as represented in the original manuscripts. The Bible consists of 66 books written by men under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. God's word has been delivered once and for all to the saints, and therefore the canon of scripture is closed. Meaning um, we're not duct taping additional great works of Christians on the back of this. This is it. This is what God has given us to understand him and, and follow his lead by. And so that, that's, that's a pretty audacious claim, especially when, again, if you're going to get pushed to answer this question by someone, whether it's a friend or it's a family member or it's, um, you're in college and you have a professor that's pushing you know, a, a, a very good question, why do you believe the Bible? Someone's going to say something and you're going to have an opinion on something. And they're going to say, well, why do you believe that? Well, that's what the Bible says. Well, yeah, but why do you believe the Bible? Why does the Bible have any authority over you? It's 2017. And then you're going to give a response. 
And Vody Bauckham said that Christians give two super lame responses. I listened to an atheist um, response to Vody Bauckham's um, message, and he said, I so agree with Vody on this. This is the dumbest things Christians say as far as a response to the question, why do I believe the Bible? The first is, because that's how I was raised. And then the second one is, well, I tried it, and it worked for me. Now, you might be sitting here today going, oh, man, that was my answer. (laughs) Uh, Those answers have worked for me every single time. And, and they make sense. And honestly, I've used those as an answer. But here's the problem. Both of those fall apart. Both of those totally fall apart when in relationship to intelligent, an intelligent person. Let me give you an example. Because that's how I was raised, mom and dad taught me that the Bible is true, and I believe it. That's adorable. That's precious. That's the wonderful thing. So your parents, they told you everything, and everything they said was true. Well, not everything. I mean... It was that fanciful seasonal creature that they told me existed, and I found out later, was traumatized, that he didn't exist. Right. So, and they also told you other stuff, too. They tell you about biology? No. They didn't tell me about biology. Well, did they tell you something about your physiology? Like, if you make a face, and you keep doing that face, that it's going to stick? They lied to you. <laughs> did they tell you, you know, before you go outside, you have to put a coat on and put something over your head because you'll catch a cold, and then you learned biologically later that, that colds are viruses, and you can't get them by covering, you can't prevent them simply by covering over your head? You learned that your parents don't know what they're talking about, and so when they say, you should believe the Bible, and you agreed with them, what are you smoking? That was the dumbest thing you could have done because of the fact that that is not a good answer to why do you believe the Bible? And then you're, you might say, well, hold on, well, hold on a sec. It's not just because my parents told me, I tried this and it worked for me. To which a person's going to turn to you and say, oh, that's even more adorable. Because you're the only person that's tried something that's worked for them. And then this person might give an example of an individual who was in prison. Or actually, before he was in prison, he was, he was born in a family where he had a mother that was uh, mentally, uh, she had mental illness, and his dad was, uh, was murdered when this individual was a young boy. He moved out to Boston to be close to his parent, to, to be close to his sister. But in Boston, he got into a rough crowd. He ended up in a situation where he got himself in, into a bunch of crime. Eventually, as an adult, he landed himself in prison. He was a bad inmate. He was a bad prisoner. And he, he just got himself in more and more trouble until two individuals came up to him and said, listen, you need to receive the Messiah. And this individual was pushed back. I don't want to receive the Messiah. And, and eventually he was laying in his bed one night and he had a vision that what they were saying was true, that this Messiah was actually someone that he should put his faith in. And so he did. And it changed his life. He, he, he became a model prisoner. He got re- released early because of how awesome a prisoner he was. He got out and he became one of the most famous preachers in American history. He opened over a hundred houses of worship. Streets are named after this guy. And the individual is Malcolm X. And Malcolm X, the Messiah that Malcolm X put his faith in, that those two individuals were encouraging him to put his faith in, was the Nation of Islam leader at the time, the prophet Elijah Muhammad. And Malcolm X put his faith in in the prophet Elijah Muhammad, and it changed his life. Except for when he, later on in his life, he found out that the prophet Elijah Muhammad, that was the head of the Nation of Islam, was a fraud. And so he left the nation of Islam and became a a more orthodox Muslim. And the nation of Islam had him assassinated. Now, if Malcolm X could have talked with you, 
He would have said, I put my faith in this so-called Messiah that these guys were talking about, the prophet, the prophet Elijah Muhammad, but I was wrong. I was wrong. I tried it. It changed my life, but I was wrong. If you've been a part of AA or any 12-step plan, they, they have a, one of the parts of the steps is this idea of um, surrendering to a higher power, right? Now, Within AA, if, if, it's not, if it's not a Christian organization like CR, I mean, they, they don't, they're not going to push religion on you. They're just saying, look, you need to identify a higher power. Just choose one. And so if you're like, yeah, but I'm not a fan of organized religion. I'm not a fan of any of this stuff. I, I just, I, I don't want that. They say, well, just pick something that you can draw upon as a higher power. And so people have literally looked out their window and seen like a blinking light and said, I don't believe in any God. I need a higher power. So I'm going to put my trust in this blinking light as my higher power. Whenever I'm tempted to drink, I'm just going to ask that blinking light to help me out. And people will tell you to this day, they're sober because they put trust in a blinking light. They tried it and it changed their life. Bodhi Bauckham was talking, um, giving this lecture at a college and he said that, listen, you may have a professor or someone who's going to push back on you and ask you, why do you believe the Bible? And you, if you use one of these, you're toast. Any intelligent person will take that apart, and rightfully so. He said, here's a better response. And he gave it to him. And then he got a response back from this one student, this female who was in this particular lecture. And she said, Vodi, it, it happened exactly as you said. I was in this class and this teacher said this thing. And I said, I don't know if I agree with that. And he says, well, why don't you agree with that? And I told him the Bible. And he said, oh, why do you believe the Bible is authority? Why do you believe the Bible? And I didn't answer with that. I answered with what you told me to say. And he said, and this is what, what he told that whole class to say. Instead of one of these answers, he said, we should, the more biblical answer is this. I choose to believe the Bible, because it is a collection of historical documents recorded by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other white eyewitnesses that record supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. She said, the, the, the prophet asked me, and I, I said, he says, why do you believe the Bible? And I said that. I said, I believe the Bible is a collection of histor is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses in the time of other eyewitnesses, that it makes claim, supernatural claims, fulfilling pro specific prophecy, and that, that we can actually, that this is all verifiable because it was created, or that it was, it claimed that it was divine rather than human in origin. And the professor just responded back with, oh, I'll get back to you on that. He wasn't expecting that response. Wouldn't it be awesome, though, if we had something like an intelligent response like that? Wouldn't it be great if all of us could walk out of here with that? Well, we are. I'm going to teach it to you. This is what we're going to do. Let's go ahead and say this all together so we can actually let this sink in. Go ahead and say this together with me. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. I'm going to teach that to you because my goal is this. You're going to walk out of here going, I, I got that. And on top of that, I want to teach you where it came from because it's not just Vodi Bauckham's thing. It comes from 2 Peter, a guy who hung out with Jesus. This is like his words. And so I want to teach this to you so we can actually grapple with that. So let's take the first part. We're going to say each of these together as we're going through. So again, we're just like 
getting it. Let's say this together. One, two, three. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents. Okay, that's super important because if it's not, then why do we believe any of this stuff? Seriously. But it is a reliable collection. It's a collection. The Bible was written by over 40 authors. It's not one dude. 40 authors on three continents, three languages, written over 1,500 years from different vantage points. This is important because what the Bible is not is one dude that had a vision that God said this, so you gotta believe what I said. One guy in one time saying something and everyone has to follow it. It's actually written by over 40 authors. And these 40 authors were people who were in power and people who were outcasts, people who were prophets and people who were poets and artists. It's a collection of them that are giving firsthand account of God's workings all the way through. It's written on three continents. It's not just one xenophobic like slice of one culture in one particular time, but over 1,500 years of different cultures saying the same story. That's why the Bible syncs up and it works together. It blows people away from that and from different vantage points. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times we go, okay, well, this is one of my frustrations with the Bible. Like, take the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. And they're all talking about the life of Jesus. Why don't we just have Matthew? Why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Number one, they're talking about some of the same stuff, but they're not saying the same thing. So it almost feels odd. Why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? If, you're, if you know someone who's a police officer, we have some awesome police officers here. If they come upon an accident or a crime scene, you're looking for a witness. I mean, you got the evidence, but you want to have a witness. But it's great if you've got more than one. Why? If you have more than one witness, you're going to get a different account from a different vantage point that's going to help you fill in the gaps. We have Luke. If you read Luke 1.1, Luke lets everyone know why he's writing. He's not an eyewitness. And he, claim, he doesn't claim to be an eyewitness. He says, I, lots of people are talking about Jesus, but Theophilus, I'm writing to you because I want to give you a historian's perspective. I want to give you a chronological account of Jesus. And so I'm going to go ahead and go through, I, and I've, I've sourced the firsthand accounts of Peter. I've talked to him. I've talked to Mary. I've talked to these other firsthand eyewitnesses to give you a chronological order of what took place. He's the guy who wrote the book of Acts. His, being a historian is his gig. He's a physician and a historian. That's what he's trying to do. A chronological, sensical thing. And he says this so that you are convinced. Not so that you have blind faith, but that you look at the evidence and you could draw a conclusion about Jesus. That, that, that was Luke. You, you get Mark. Mark is a guy who, who, who was a tight person with Peter. And so he recorded from Peter the account of Jesus. You remember Peter? The dude was super impulsive, right? He was just like... Like, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I'm running away from you. On the same day. I mean, that, that was Peter. He's like impulsive, right? ADD, like no one's could. It's amazing that this guy did so many amazing things, but that's Peter. So Mark is the shortest. It's, it's the ADD version of the Gospels. It's the shortest one. And I appreciate it because I've got ADD. And it's the shortest. So it's like, and then, and then, and then. It's the shortest, most abbreviated Gospel. You have Matthew who's trying to write to a Jewish audience. And so he's saying, listen, this Jesus didn't just show up on the scene. He's the one, he's the prophesied Jewish Messiah that we've been learning about from, from the get-go. That's why Matthew starts off with the genealogy. And John, John's book was written to be evangelistic. That's why if you became a Christian, one of the first things someone probably told you to read in the Bible was the book of John. He wants people to, to understand that they have certainty in their faith because of the life of Jesus. And he knew because he was a firsthand eyewitness. 
This is something, it is a collection, a reliable collection of historical documents. But not just that, as we said, it's written by eyewitnesses. And, and Peter goes on to say this. Let's go ahead and read this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying here, look, I'm not telling you what my granny told me about Jesus. I'm not telling you what lots of cool good people have told me about and I'm trying to like propagate this religion. I'm telling you what I saw. Eyewitness accounts were so important in the New Testament. And you have John who hung out with Jesus and he's writing a letter to a church. This is what he starts off the letter with. The first two verses of that letter, he says, and, and listen, listen to the, the, the sensory like, like what he's, he's, he wants to let people know this is something that has been recorded that's a first-hand account. That which was from the beginning, which we have what? Heard. Which we have what? Seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have the fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what the first apostles died for. They were not saying, I want you to believe this because it's going to make your life good. I, I, they're not saying, I want you to believe this because this is going to make you richer and your teeth whiter and you're going to be loved by everyone and, and men, women that will instinctively flock to you like the salmon of Capistrano. That is not what he's saying. He's saying, what is he saying? This is the truth. We've seen it. We know it. We've touched it. And, and, we, and this is something that, that's super important because not only that, let's say this all together. I choose, let's rule out, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. If I told you, hey, you know what? When I was seven years old, it was so cool. The president of the United States called my family and I flew from Los Angeles to DC because the president wanted to know what I thought about his policies. As a seven-year-old, I stood in the Oval Office and I, I waxed eloquent about how he should proceed and he listened to me and he actually changed his policies and the world is better because of it. Not a single person in this room would believe me. Why? Because you know me and you're like, that never happened. But second, you're like, okay, Errol, if that happened, do you have a picture? Any photographic evidence of this? No, man, it was super, super top secret. So I can't, I can't give you a picture. What, does anyone co corroborate what you just said, like outside of your family? Because they're going to just like believe you because it's you. But anyone outside of your family? Was anyone else there? Did, did you hear me? I said top secret and I didn't stutter. Okay. So that, but not, no one would believe me, right? Because that didn't happen. And there's no way to corroborate that. The important thing we see in scripture is that the evidence and what is said is falsifiable. Meaning that you could fact check it. It's written in a time where there's other eyewitnesses so you can fact check the information or, and say this is totally not true. That's why skeptics love Paul and they love 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is what has turned a lot of people who believe this was just a mythological fairy tale book into believers. People who actually study ancient manuscripts and understand this stuff say the thing that got me was 1 Corinthians 15 because who wrote 1 Corinthians? Paul. Paul is someone who's falsifiable. We can actually find out whether he existed or not outside of the Bible. 
Once they found out that, yes, there's other, other sources that talk about the same Paul, then we're like looking and saying, well, did he write 1 Corinthians? And they find out that he did. Okay, so this guy's real. He legitimately wrote this. And then 1 Corinthians 15 happens where he says, this is the most important thing. Most important thing I'm passing on to you is this, that Jesus died and rose again and he appeared to the 12 and he appeared to over 500 others. And most of those are alive to this day. What does that mean? That to this day, when Paul wrote that, at least 301 people were eyewitnesses still. Paul is saying, fact check this. These are people who are not saying this because it's going to push forward a, a, an agenda that's gonna better their life. They are persecuted because of this agenda. But fact check this information. Paul is someone who, again, he was like, he received a vision from God. So what did he do? He goes back to Jerusalem, even though he was a guy who persecuted Christians, he goes back to Jerusalem and he talks with the first eyewitnesses of Peter and James and John saying, listen, I need to know, am I following the same God? Because I had a vision, but I don't know, is it just a vision or is this, is this congruent with what you actually knew as people who saw all this stuff? Eyewitnesses are huge, important. Not only that, the archaeological evidence. Um, before, lots of people looked at the Bible as, again, it's a, it's a good book. But it's, a, it's, a, it's a holy book. And holy books are good for religion, but they're not good for much else. And on top of that, we believe that the Bible is unreliable because it says stuff like about the Hittites. There's no people group called the Hittites. And then like, they're, they're, like they talk about Quirinius as, as this, this ruler. We haven't found any evidence for a Quirinius. This is make-believe. They're inventing names and people groups. This is J.R.R. Tolkien, but it's not like something you should like bank your life off of until the shovel goes deep enough to find the plaque to Quirinius. And all of a sudden they realize that the person the Bible was talking about that no one believed existed, existed. And then all of a sudden the shovel goes deep enough to discover the civilization of the Hittites. And all of a sudden people start to realize, whoa, I don't believe this, but I should really start to read it. Over 23,000 archaeological finds were sourced directly from Scripture. The um, American Archaeological Institute of Research uh, head, former head, said, the excessive skepticism shown towards the Bible, this is W.F. Albright, the excessive skepticism shown towards the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries, certain phrases of which still appear periodically, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. On top of that, you have the fact that, that it was really easy to believe that this was maybe not written at the time that it was written, like specifically the New Testament. Maybe it was something like later on, like in the 200s and 300s, Constantine probably orchestrated it. We've all read Dan Brown. We know the Da Vinci Code. That that was something that happened. Um, and the reality is, is that the more evidence, I mean, the more science we do, the more we realize that these, that these accounts, these manuscripts are directing right back to exactly when they said that they were being written that the entire New Testament was finished by the end of the first century and just into the second century based on whether or not, where you, how you date the book of Revelation. That it was all done within the lifetime where it could be falsifiable, where it could be like discredited. People could say this is all bogus or not because the eyewitnesses were still living. But, but that, again, translations though, that, that's a problem for us, right? Because I mean, we can't believe the Bible because well, like for one thing, number one, we can't believe the Bible because didn't those translating the Bible edit it to make Jesus out to be more godlike than he really was? 
I mean, Constantine, right? He wanted to unify the Roman Empire, and so the dude, like, tweaked everything, and he had, like, rogue, a rogue monk go through and, like, edit out where it said, you know, Jesus was just a good man, and edited it so it kind of gives Jesus the appearance of rising from the grave so that Christians would actually believe in this superhero God that Jesus wasn't. I mean, that's what happened, right? The rogue monk theory, the fanatical monk theory is awesome. And it's awesome because the evidence is so against it. Here's why. If there was a rogue monk, either by Constantine or someone else, to like edit the manuscripts, he would have to do this. There are 6,000, up to 6,000 manuscripts and parts of manuscripts that this rogue monk would have to go and edit out or edit in that Jesus rose from the grave or, or make him out to be more divine than he actually was. He would have to edit them, not show his work, and not tell anybody about it because if he told anyone about it, they would know about it. And so he's got to keep this a secret, edit, not show his work. But he's got to do that six th- on 6,000 documents. That's a lot of work for a rogue monk. I mean, come on, give the rogue monk some props. I mean, that's a lot of work. But his day gets worse Because the rogue monk not only has to do that, he has to deal with the fact that when Jesus rose from the grave and he told his disciples to take this message to all ethnos, all ethnic groups, all of a sudden they started going to places that were not just Greek. They started going to all ethnic groups. And so the message of Jesus and the words of scripture were being translated into Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. So now this poor rogue monk not only has to go through 6,000 things, hide his work, edit the, edit the stuff, hide his work, and make sure not to tell anyone, he's got to go ahead and learn Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, and learn how to lie in those languages as good as he lied in Greek, not show his work, and make sure not to tell anyone about it. But his day just got worse, because guess what he found out? The early church fathers had a terrible, terrible tradition that they wanted to write commentaries on the New Testament. Like, this is amazing. Instead of just saying, the book of Ephesians is amazing. Here's what it's talking about. They would actually quote the Bible verbatim in their commentaries, like include all the scripture. So now this rogue monk has to go through 6,000 documents, edit them, not show his work, learn Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, and be able to delete, edit stuff out of there, not show his work. But he now has to go and find the early church fathers, knock them off, take their commentaries, and edit those out too. The amazing thing about the early church fathers' commentaries is this. They did commentaries on so much of the New Testament that if we didn't have any, any of the the early manuscripts in Greek or any of the Syriac, Coptic, and Latin stuff, we would still be able to reproduce the entire New Testament with the exception of 11 verses based on their commentaries alone. Now, folks, this rogue monk theory is delusional. It doesn't even make good Dan Brown fiction. I mean, it really doesn't. That's a, that's a pushback, but it's a pushback that evidence has educated us on. The second one, and you, I'm, you probably have heard this one, isn't the Bible less reliable because it has been translated so many times? Have we heard this? Yeah. I mean, this might be something that you might be thinking too, like, okay, I'm reading this, but how do I know this is actually like what was in the original manuscripts? Because I mean, like it's been translated so many times. You go into a Christian bookstore, there's like, what what are the translations? NIV, King James, ESV. Okay, yeah, all right, let's do this. New King James, yeah. Let's just say this, all right. It'd be kind of like this. Let's just say that I am the early Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. The pushback to whether or not we have reliable copy is this. It's looked at like this. I go up here to Steve, and Steve comes and he translates. He translates a copy 
of the early Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, right? He translates it, and then someone translates it from him, and then someone translates it from her, and then we keep on, you keep on translating it all the way through. And then when it gets back to the back to Ryan, way back there in the corner, by it's gone through, all of you guys have translated from the previous translation, dating all the way back to Steve's translation, right? What, what's that game called? Telephone game. And the, the pushback to, to the Bible is, how do I believe the Bible? Because what we have is the end of the telephone game. It's been translated so many times by the time it gets back there to 2017. How do I believe anything in it? If that's, if that's a problem for you, I want to encourage you with this. If that's been maybe a, a barrier to you having faith, I want to encourage you with the fact that that's not how the Bible translations worked, and they don't work. And anyone who, who actually says that, they're ignorant of the process, and they just need to be educated. So you lovingly can let them know. Um, that's, that's honestly not the way it works. See, the way that it would work, where, the way it works now is this. Those translations that I just talked about, ESV, NIV, King James Version, the ESV was translated in like 2000, 2001. Here's what the ESV didn't do. The ESV didn't go back to like the NIV, which the earlier NIV was like 1984 translation. They didn't go to the NIV in 1984 and say, okay, let's take this Bible and just translate a different translation from this. And the NIV didn't say with their 1984 translation, we're gonna get the art a translation. We're gonna go back here to the King James Version to translate off of. If they had done that, that would be the telephone game, and we should have zero reliability that we have what the original manuscripts were going for. But what translators do, the way translation happens is this, not if just one person got the manuscript and then people are translating from him, translating from her, translating from him, from her, from him to her, all the way to the back. It would be as if all of you came up here to the source, to the Greek and Hebrew manuscript, and you guys all got the first-hand account and then went and said what it says. It's not the telephone game. It's all of you going to the source. And not only that, it's not this cryptic group of people who can do this. Any one of you today can go home and look at the early manuscripts, and if you learn Hebrew and Greek, and you can, you can learn and actually translate out and see how close the NIV, ESV, King James Version, or whatever else actually get to the original text. This is not something like that. It's amazing. The thing that I love about that, though, is that it helps me have more confidence in the fact that the book that we have today is a reliable collection of these historical documents that are eyewitness-based in the presence of other eyewitnesses. And it's something that we can actually say, yeah, we can actually go to the source. The translations we have not only give us the more accurate, the most accurate to date, but it also shows us how accurate even the ones done hundreds of years ago were. And as we continue to surface more ancient manuscripts, older and old, older manuscripts, we're able to see, oh my goodness, how phenomenally close they are. It's awesome. And on top of that, as, just as far as a, a, an ancient book, Compared to other ancient books, this blows my mind because we believe, thing, we believe Aristotle and Caesar and Homer wrote the works that, that we say they wrote based on the ancient manuscripts. The ancient manuscripts for Caesar's Gaelic Wars, there's less than a dozen manuscripts. That's not bad. That's good. It's a good thing. Um, less than a dozen is, is still some. It's more than one. The only problem is that the earliest manuscript is over a thousand years later. A, a thousand years after it was written, that's the earliest copy we have. But that's not a problem because we look at that as still verifiable. That's something that we believe Caesar did it and it's trustworthy. Home, um, Aristotle, he wrote his poetics. Now there's more of those manuscripts. And so we're like, that's a good thing. There's less than 50, but that's still solid. That was also a thousand years later. The earliest manuscript that we can put our hands on, the earliest copy is less than 
or is about a thousand years after that. Homer's Iliad has got more. How many of you read Homer's Iliad in high school? We believe Homer wrote that. We believe that what we have is, is an accurate account of Homer's work. There's actually 600 manuscripts of that, which is, that's boom, that's awesome. It was a really important work. The only problem with that is that the earliest manuscript we can put our hands on today, it was over 2,100 years after the fact. Less than a dozen, 50, 600, the earliest being 1,000 years later, 1,000 years later, 2,100 years later. The importance about how this stands up with the Bible is insurmountable. Because when we look at the Bible, the Bible has more than 6,000 manuscripts, and the earliest manuscript is within a few decades of the original. Not a hundred years, not a thousand years, within a few decades. If you go to Fort Wayne, Indiana, you're gonna find my mom has documents that I did in kindergarten and first grade a few decades ago that you can pull up and say, this is the early work of Errol McFadden and she's kept it because it matters. And you can actually take those early documents done a few decades ago and verify that not only did I do that, but that you can copy that and give people a good idea of what I was writing in first grade, which is good stuff. <laughs> we can actually today put our hands on documents that go back to a few decades of the original. This is unparalleled, unparalleled by any estimation when it comes to ancient manuscripts. So... Let's go ahead and read this again together. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events. In this passage, Peter goes on to talk about the, the transfiguration. He's not saying, look, I'm just going to give you like a science book. Or, hey, I'm just going to give you just a straight-up history book. He's like, I'm going to give you an accounting of the fact that this is not just a good book about how to be moral. I'm going to give you an accounting of, of, of the fact that God became man. And he's the savior of the world. And this Jesus is for you and for me. He gives accounting of things like the resurrection that we put our faith in. And it's faith. It's a faith step. But it's a faith built and based on eyewitness accounts that we can have greater trust in. Not only that, it's also in fulfillment of specific prophecies when you um, look in the Bible, you actually are seeing how every, the reason that Jesus was so verifiably accurate to the early Jewish population was because of the fact that they were seeing everything they had learned in the Old Testament come true for him. Isaiah 53 describes the work and effort he did on the cross in this passage that's been dubbed the suffering servant. There's an organization in Israel today that, that are Jewish-Israeli people that, that have received Jesus as their Messiah, and they want to tell their brothers and sisters in, in Judaism that their Messiah has come. And one of the things they do when they're talking with their friends is say, listen, I just want you to have an open mind, and I want you to, to actually, I want, I'm going to read to you a passage from this book, and I want you to tell me what book I'm reading from and who it's about. And they read Isaiah 53. Many, many Jewish people um, know 52, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 54, but they kind of skimp on 53 because it often is a real clear directional standpoint of Jesus. And so they'll read Isaiah 53 and their friend will say, well, I, I, you can stop right there. I know who this is about. This is about Jesus and it's from your New Testament. And then they show them that it's actually the Tanakh, the Old Testament Bible, which is kind of infuriating if you see that in your own text, it's pointing to Jesus and you've rejected him. But that's been what's actually opened up a lot of people's hearts. Psalm 22. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you 
Okay, we know that, but that comes from Psalm 22. They didn't have numbers on their Psalms back in the day. So they weren't like, hey, that's Psalm 22. They knew that as the title to a song, the song of David, Psalm 22, what we would call Psalm 22, but the, they, back then they would just call out the, the stuff from, um, like they would call out a Psalm from the first line. And the, the title of that Psalm is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he stops. He doesn't say any of the rest of the this, this psalm. He doesn't lay out any more of the lyrics in the song. Why? Why was he just giving people a song title? I mean, that's like someone who's like, born in the USA, and then like just that's it. It's the purpose, perhaps, was to get people to go and say, what was the rest of the song that Jesus didn't say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22 goes through and describes all the conditions with the Gentiles around them and everything else that was happening around the crucifixion and describes the crucifixion 1,000 years before the crucifixion was invented. To the point that skeptics have said Psalm 22 had to have been written after the, the crucifixion. Only problem with that, again, is science and evidence. We go back and we're able to find that Psalm 22 is on papyrus 100 years before Jesus was born and can date back to a thousand years, the actual accounting as being one of King David's Psalms. Specific prophecies. So let's go ahead and read this together. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. If this is just a, a man-made book, I don't have any, I don't care. I don't care for it. I mean, seriously, if this is just a man-made writing, who cares? But if it's not, if it's not, then I would do well to take it seriously. That's what Peter says in that passage right there. For, uh, let's go ahead and look from 19 on. He says this, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and that you would do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, this isn't a man-made book. Verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let me just close with this. Two things. Actually, just two questions. You might be a Christian. And if you're a Christian today, I want to challenge you with this. Will you invest time this year? Will you invest time this year to honestly read God's word and let his story transform your story? Not just treat the Bible as like, yeah, I kind of believe this because parents kind of handed it down and it makes you a good person and stuff. But you actually said, I'm actually going to treat the Bible as if it was an authority in my life. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you already believe, but actually to say, I believe this because this is a reliable collection of historical documents. That this is something that God has given me that I'm actually going to read it as if it's something that is over my life. And if you're not a Christian, and, and for, so if you're a Christian, I want to challenge you to jump in on that with us as we're reading through the story. Read chapter one. I'll put on Facebook all the, if you haven't uh, bought the book, I'll put all the passages on Facebook so that you can follow along with us for free. I just want people to actually get the, if you're a Christian, to actually sink your teeth in that. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not someone who's turned over to Jesus, I want to challenge you. Will you engage God's word this year? Open. Will you just be open? 
You're not convinced, you're not sold out on it, but open to the possibility that it is more than a book and could possibly change everything. My eyes do not adjust well. They don't. I don't know what it is. But if I'm like in a bright room, I go into a dark room, it takes a long time for my eyes to adjust. And my family takes advantage of this. (laughs) They hide and cruelly jump out and scream. I hate it. My eyes cannot adjust and it frustrates me. If you're someone who's here and you're not a believer, it's gotta be frustrating. You don't see. You don't get why other people see. I wanna challenge you with what Peter's own words when he says this. You will do well to pay attention to this scripture. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Open yourself to the possibility. Focus on the light. The light of Jesus, the light of the reality of what we're seeing in scripture until, just possibly, the sun will come up in your heart and you actually believe this thing that seems so far off from belief right now. Amen? Invite your world. Let's journey alongside them as we're doing this together. Right now, we're gonna pray um, for our, we're gonna take a special offering for victims of the hurricane in Houston. And for those in Florida, all this is going to the Salvation Army and their efforts because they're doing awesome work. We, we're totally behind them. Um, we are, where are the Everett? The Everett's are right here. They're actually former NBCers, expats that um, moved down. They're, they're in Florida. They just moved in five weeks ago. Is that right? Five weeks ago. And what greeted them? A hurricane. This is why I'm against moving to Florida, guys, okay? But it's, there's a very good chance that they're not going to have a home to return to. And so we went, they're up here, literally like refugees up here. So we're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for all the other victims and that God uses what we give today uh, to help out. Right after that, Pastor Dave's got an announcement or two and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lift up to you. Um, man, we seek, Lord, we seek you. God, I pray that you come alongside the victims in Houston as we prayed last week and those in Florida and surrounding areas uh, today, God. Lord, we pray that you supernaturally provide in ways um, that people couldn't, didn't see coming. I pray, Lord, that those who are tight with you will grow tighter and they will have a grip on you that is um, able to bring healing and impact to others and those who are far from you. That in the midst of chaos, that they will find trust planted in who you are. Lord, I pray that you use the funds that we raise today, God, um, for your glory and their good. And we'll give you thanks for that. We also pray for the Everett's, Lord. We pray um, that you just protect their home. Lord, we know that you work through tragedy and loss. So we're, we know that even if that happens, that you're gonna be there and you're gonna be good. But we are asking God in faith that you do a supernatural work there and protect uh, their home. And we'll give you thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.